Father, we thank you that you are our refuge, our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Send your Spirit to open the eyes of our heart, that we may live lives that please you and bring glory to your name in our generation. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. Good morning. A couple years ago, I was in Chicago and heard a speaker describe the suffering of the early Christians in the first three centuries. And he said that the believers were committed to a social project, an agenda, that really defied the categories of the communities, the cultures, the societies that they were dispersed around. Today, we have a huge pressure on Christians to reduce the social project, to reduce the missionary endeavor, the priorities of the kingdom, to a political agenda, and thereby disemboweling Christianity of its sinews and its muscles and its very lifeblood. In the first three centuries, these believers, aliens and strangers, scattered as they were across the ancient world, were concerned with those who were not from their ethnic background. That was unheard of. They were concerned for the poor, those economically disenfranchised. Again, that was little known outside family and friends. They took note and went out of their way like Macrina of Cappadocia to go over the rubbish tips of the Middle East looking for infants who'd been discarded as trash and then to raise them and adopt them as their own family. This, this was unprecedented. And in a culture and societies where in conflict it was an eye for an eye, they responded with this ethic of non-retaliation. And within sexual relationships where there was unbridled and unchecked double standards for men, and where there was abuse and self-gratification unhindered, this movement provided a countercultural ethic of self-giving, of mutual satisfaction within lifelong exclusive marriage between a man and a woman. And so as the aliens and strangers settled across the ancient world, there was this friction, there was this abrasion within the communities that they felt, a suffering. As Peter says, it is better to suffer for good, for God's kingdom, if it is God's will, than to do evil. And that's the suffering that I'd like to talk about with us this morning. It's not involuntary suffering, the sort of involuntary suffering through grief and loss, as many of us have experienced and are experiencing through the pandemic, physically or economically, or in so many ways, or through oppression and exploitation, the cruelty and violence of others. 
not that involuntary suffering, but a voluntary suffering for good, for righteousness' sake. And Peter, in our passage, gives three reasons why suffering that is voluntary is something that is part and parcel of being an alien and stranger in the world. The first reason is about the Lord's attentiveness in verse 18, his attention to his people. The second reason is his verdict in verses 18 through 21. And the third reason is his victory, his attentiveness, his verdict, and his victory. Well, first, his attentiveness. In verse 18, he says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Some years ago, I lived in mainland China. I can't remember exactly when it was. The government had a campaign, I think it was the anti-spiritual pollution campaign, and I remember some police officers in leather jackets arriving on motorcycles at my apartment to question me, and no doubt many who were aliens in the land were being questioned at the same time. It was around that time I was visited by Xiao Tang. Xiao Tang was a house church Christian from the countryside, and he had really inspired my life. His devotion to Christ and his decision, which for him was a huge one, to go to a government Communist Party-run seminary in the city. Well, he had a heart for Christ, and he would go across the city to the universities and would lead many to Christ, and then he would baptize them in the Yangtze River. Once the seminary got wind of this, they clamped down on him like a ton of bricks, and they expelled him. Departing from the seminary, his first port of call was my apartment. We had spent much time together, and I was shocked to hear that he'd been kicked out of seminary. And then Xiao Tang turned to me, and with a smile, he quoted the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I realized that Xiao Tang had grasped that the Lord was attentive to him. And he said, I feel privileged that I have suffered for my Lord. Peter writes that Christ died for sins, and in one translation, the, new, uh, the English Standard Version, it says he suffered for sins. And there is good textual warrant for suffered. It's mentioned 11 times in the letter. But the grammar is really, I think, a key here, because the word for suffered or died is a completed action, a finished event. It is done. It has been and will be done forever. It is finished once for all. But not only is it finished, it has, complete, it has continuing results. And one of the many results of the continuation or continuing benefits of this event is that believers, those aliens and strangers who are scattered, participate and identify with the suffering of Christ. In the next chapter, in verse 13, Peter says, but rejoice if you participate, that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. 
that you may be overjoyed when his glories are revealed. And a little later, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Suffering, perhaps, was a type of a badge of honor. Well, suffering in that world at that time among the Greco world was something deeply offensive to the Greek mind. According to their own worldview philosophers, the Stoics, suffering was something that God was beyond. He was beyond emotion. He was rational, self-disciplined, and those who advanced in their own development also were to be beyond feeling. But Christ died for sins. He was put to death in the flesh. And this was a sticking point for 300 years in the Greco-Roman world. It was offensive to them. But it was necessary that Christ should die for sins because it was only through his death that the block between God and men and women would be removed. He died for sins. In our own day, sins are often minimized or trivialized. Perhaps it's that extra chocolate chip cookie or that speeding ticket or that little white lie, all things that matter in their place. But the scriptures teach about sin as more than that, as an invidious force. In Hebrews 3.13, the author says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is known as today that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is this disease, a daily disease that hardens people. And in Romans 5.12, Paul says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Sin not only deceives on a daily basis, not only does it destroy, it takes what is true and good and beautiful that the Lord has made and corrodes it and corrupts it. And so it was through Christ's death on the cross that this sin must be dealt with. Christ suffered in his flesh at infinite cost to himself and at infinite cost to his Father in heaven. We read about it in chapter 1, verse 3, where he says that he was sprinkled by his blood. And so Christ, therefore, is bringing to God a people to God, his Father. And the word to bring you to God is so significant in this passage. The image there is of citizens who are being brought before their king as members of his dominion, of his empire. It is also an image of a consecrated sacrificial offering. And so when our Father in heaven looks at his children, and he sees their voluntary suffering. He sees citizens of his own kingdom. He sees sacrificial gifts that are precious in his sight. And so he will not abandon them. He will not discard them. He will not be indifferent to them. And of course, this is the case that we three see throughout the Scriptures in a previous generation when Israel for 400 years endured slavery. We read in Exodus 2, 23 and 24 that the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. They cried out for help because of their slavery and it went up to God. And God heard their groaning 
and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. In Isaiah 63, 9, says, in their distress, he too was distressed. He lifted them up and cared for them and carried them. This God is attentive to his people. This God feels, this God has a heart. Earlier in the chapter, it says that his eyes are open to the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. This God knows his heart is compassionate towards his people. He is the attentive God. But there's more than that in this passage. Peter goes on to talk about the verdict in verses, the end of verse 18 to 21. He said he was made alive in the spirit and also preached to the spirits in prison. Preached to the spirits that were in prison. When God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few, eight in all, were saved through water that symbolized baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you through the resurrection of Christ. The phrase to underline or emphasize is the resurrection of Christ. Because Christ himself was vilified, he was ridiculed, he was subject to a judicial system that was broken, he was unfairly accused, he was cruelly and violently attacked and beaten and stapled to a cross. And it is in his resurrection that the verdict has passed, that his life has been vindicated, that his victory over death and sin is to be seen. The verdict on his life is that he has been victorious, he's been vindicated, and that for any of these aliens and strangers who are in Christ, that verdict on Christ's resurrection is imputed to them, that whatever scars and bruises and wounds that they have received in body or mind or in their soul, that the word that counts most is that verdict of the resurrection, that final word spoken over them in Christ. I guess during COVID-19, many of us are suffering in so many different ways. For those who are able to work at home, it creates a certain new dynamic of trying to manage professional life, personal life. And for those who are essential workers, again, more challenges and stresses beyond what most of us, I guess, can really understand. I've had the opportunity to read a little bit more than usual, and one book I came across was written by Paul Hathaway. Paul Hathaway wrote the book called China's Christian Martyrs. In it, he claims that for the last 1,300 years, since the 7th century, there have been 250,000 martyrs in China. And since 1900, more Christians have been martyred than all other countries combined. Well, as I read through the book, it came as a bit of a surprise to read about someone who I knew, Jonathan Chow. Not that he had been martyred, but Jonathan was someone who had visited my home, Kim and I, our home in Philadelphia, and had challenged us to serve the Lord in China. Jonathan was a strategist, a scholar, a leader, 
a man with tremendous understanding and insight of the Christian movement in China over the last 1,300 years. And he wrote this quotation, which I was really touched by, when he said that the church in China has been transformed from a mission church, a dependent church, a foreign-colored church, into an indigenous church, a missionary church, a church that has walked the steps with her Lord of the cross. It's walked the steps of betrayal, triumph, and humiliation. It's walked the steps of abandonment, of suffering, and of death. It's walked the steps of burial, of death, resurrection, and the gift of Pentecost, the gift of the Spirit. And it is resurrection that is the pivot point, that this resurrection of the church in China could not occur unless there had been a death, unless there had been a suffering, there could be no resurrection, and yet it was resurrection that was the pivot point. Resurrection was the living hope, but resurrection was also the power, the power to transform a body which today is the largest Christian body in the world, estimates between 80 and 100 million believers in China today. It was the resurrection that saved them. It's the resurrection that gave power, that gave life to this scattered group of aliens and strangers across the ancient world. It is resurrection that gives the verdict over those who are maligned for Christ, who voluntarily suffer for His kingdom. It is resurrection and the power of the resurrection that gives new life, that brings to life what has died. And the clothing, if you will, of that authentic bride of Christ is betrayal, of trial, of humiliation, of abandonment, suffering, death, burial. These are the items, the garments of the bride of Christ that is then resurrected. And so as Peter writes to these marginalized and scattered believers, he is encouraging them with the victory that Christ has won over death. His final verdict over his life is now imputed to them of the power of the resurrection. Well, he goes on in this text in a very tricky passage, and we don't have time this morning to go into all the details of this, and I encourage you, if you are interested, to study it further. But there are basically three interpretations of this text of Christ preaching to the spirits in prison. The first is from the early church, and the view is that between His crucifixion and His resurrection, Christ preached to dead people in hell, perhaps to give them a second chance. The word used there is prison, the word for prison. It's not the word for hell. And in the New Testament, the word for hell that is used is Hades or Sheol or Tartarus, but that is not the word that is used here, and so it creates a, a problem for that view. During the Reformation, the reformers and contemporary reform theologians like Wayne Grudem see this as Christ preaching in and through Noah in his pre-existent form to that, that generation, that Christ was preaching through Noah. Noah is described in 2 Peter 2.5 as a preacher of righteousness. So there is a parallel there between Noah the preacher and Christ the preacher. 
However, Peter says that this is after he is made alive in the Spirit. And so thereby there is an issue, a problem with that view also. More contemporary scholars like Howard Marshall and Karen Job see this as Christ preaching to the spirits in his ascension, acclaiming and announcing his victory over the fallen angels in prison in heaven, in a restrained place, position, if you will, so, so hard for us to even fathom what he's talking about at this point. The word used there is pneumata, which is used for spirits rather than psychos, which is used often for the souls of the dead. Now, it's a passage that hinges on Genesis 6, which we had read earlier in our service. And a key verse in that is Genesis 6-5, where it says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness on earth man had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil all the time, indicating that the trigger for judgment was human wickedness rather than a demonic or a supernatural fallen angel causation for the judgment. However, if we look at that passage in Genesis 6 in a wider context, then the preface for it does come from the fallen angels or the evil spirits who have infected, if you like, the humans on earth. The point that Peter is trying to make here is that the God who saved Noah with such a few number is the same God who will save these aliens and strangers who are a minority. The God who judged a complete society that refused to repent is the same God who will judge a complete society that refuses to repent in Peter's day. The Lord was restrained. He was patient. We know that from Genesis 15, 16, where he waited 400 years for the Amorites to repent. But after his patience finally comes to an end, there is a catastrophic judgment. And Peter is encouraging these beleaguered, marginalized believers that in the second flood, in the heavenly judgment, the great white throne judgment, where the books are open and everything about everyone is revealed and exposed to the world, that at that judgment, at that moment, they will be exonerated because of the resurrection of Christ. That verdict given on his life will be imputed to them. Their eternal security is assured. The Lord is attentive. The Lord has a verdict that is imputed to them. And finally, he is victorious. We read that he has gone to heaven. He is at the right hand of the Father with angels, authorities, and powers in, in submission to him. There's a painting by the German 17th century painter Peter Rubens. It's a masterpiece that depicts a martyrdom of a Christian. It's a Christian from the seventh century in what is today modern-day Belgium. And the painting is called The Martyrdom of St. Lavinius. It's a tradition that Lavinius in the seventh century was martyred. And in the painting, it's a striking masterpiece, Lavinius is at the center, slightly to the left, and his judges are around him, accusing him and pressuring him to recant his faith. 
and they hold in their arms these metal tongs that they have just cut out his tongue, used to cut out his tongue. And Levinus, with his arms outstretched, is looking upward towards the sky. At that very moment, the sky opens, and descending upon him, there are some angels with a crown, a wreath to crown him in his martyrdom, and the sword of the wrath of God. It's a very energetic scene, and the soldiers standing by are startled by this intrusion. The horses are staggering, and Rubens is depicting more than the eye can see. He's representing something outside of time in time. He's representing something from eternity in history and time itself. And if you follow art over the next two or three hundred years, you'll notice that in paintings of earth, that usually the sky is painted over, it's closed in, as if to say we, we are in a closed universe, that no longer need to worry about angels or dominions or authorities or powers. We, we live in a closed universe. This is the real world today. Similar, perhaps, to Peter Pan, who is told to grow up and live in the adult world. Leave those make-believe, childish fables behind. We live in the world of data. We live in the world of facts, of reason. We live in the world of human flourishing as our goal, and we live in a world where we pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Well, Rubens is pointing to something more, to something beyond, to a reality that earth and history are interpenetrated and interconnected with eternity itself, and that there is this activity between heaven and earth of spiritual forces of good and spiritual forces of evil. If you talk to some of our missionaries, Stuart and Cynthia Foster, for example, they will tell you from personal experience that the issue of supernatural hostile forces towards the kingdom of God and the spiritual forces of evil are no joke. It's not something to minimize. It's not something to trivialize. There is a reality there that we believers in Western countries often are deaf to and blind to, to this reality of heaven and earth. As Jesus said, angels, you'll see angels descending and ascending on him, that he is the locus of reality. He is the focal point for it. He has gone into heaven, and he is at the right hand of the Father. His resurrection is his return from the depths of hell, of the depths of death itself. His ascension is his return to the height of glory. He has completed his U-shaped journey from the incarnation to his baptism to his crucifixion and his resurrection, ascension, and session. It has completed his U-shaped journey. And in the words of Irenaeus, the theologian, he recapitulates the entire history of humanity from creation and fall, redemption and restoration that Christ himself has issued and demonstrated what it means to be fully human and fully God. And he has given us in his words the ascent 
to heaven, the ladder to heaven, the gift of the Holy Spirit that he has poured out. Well, Christ is at the right hand of the Father, ascended. And his ascension basically means three things. First of all, it means his authority. At the right hand of the Father means he has the executive privilege. He is the authority in heaven and in earth. And that has political implications. In Peter's day, Christ is the Lord, not not Caesar. It also has implications that he is Lord, not simply of this marginal group of aliens and strangers in Pontus or in Cappadocia, but of men and women in Phrygia or Scythia, or men and women in Japan and China and Saudi Arabia, Iran, Yemen, or Mauritania or Belgium or the UK or Canada. He is Lord of all the peoples in all times at all places. He is the one. He is the locus of all authority in heaven on earth. It means he is ascended and that his victory will be seen one day by all. But it also means that he's accessible. During the time that he had on earth, he was limited geographically and chronologically. But now, ascended as the Lord of heaven and earth, he is accessible. And in the words of Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near then confidently in the throne of grace that we may receive grace and find grace to help in time of need. Now, any, anywhere, at any point in time, at any part on the globe can invoke his name for his help in whatever suffering they are going through, whatever suffering you are going through, for righteousness' sake, he is accessible. But he is also active. He's authoritative, he's accessible, and he's active. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. We know from Hebrews 7.25 that consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is exercising a ministry of intercession on behalf of his people. In the words of J.I. Packer, the theologian who passed away this week, he said that God Christ gives the benefits of his suffering one for him to his people through this ministry of intercession for the church in every time and every place. He is active. Yes, he is seated, but his seating is not because he is resting or taking a nap or sleeping. His sitting is because he is ruling. And we see that in Psalm 110, that he is fighting his enemies. We see it in Acts 7.56, where he's standing and seeing and watching the martyrdom of Stedham. We see it in Revelation 2, where he walks among his churches. We see it in Revelation 19, where on his war horse he goes to victory against the forces of evil. Christ's ascension means that these believers do not need to fear the forces behind their persecutors, behind their critics, behind the ones who malign them. Those forces have ultimately been defeated, and one day that victory will be seen and visible for all. So where does this lead us? Suffering voluntarily for good, for righteousness' sake. Yes, to suffer for God's kingdom, to suffer for biblical truth, to suffer for his agenda, for his social project, for his missionary endeavor in, in our time. Yes, there is a cost to that. 
And it may be the cost of a St. Levinus, of a life, or it may be the life, the cost of a Shaotang, of expulsion, or it may be any manner of costs in between. The early Christians understood the cost of following Christ. They understood the cost of faithful endurance. They understood what it meant to be committed to this social project, this missionary endeavor in their era. And the question is, are we? The question is, for us collectively in our community, how will future generations remember us? How will they look on us at such a time as this in our culture, in our society at this moment? How will they look back on this period of history? What will they see as we believers in North America, in the Western world, what will they say about our generation in terms of suffering for gospel, suffering for the kingdom of God? What will they say? Will they say we have compromised the call on our lives? Or will they say something differently? And what do you say in your own life, personally, individually? What are you going to say this week? For how we spend our days is how we live our lives, as one author has put it. How will you spend each day this week? Will you exhort one another lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, this disease that distorts and separates us from God and from each other, this disease that paralyzes us and that destroys us? How will you live each day this week? Will you ask the Lord how you are to live each day for Him, bearing His cross, living for His kingdom, whatever those sticking points, those areas of abrasion are in your relationships with your friends, your family, your co-workers, your neighbors? What areas are there in your life where you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? It was the African Christian Tertullian who, in closing, said this, Our movement can never die. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Dying, we conquer. The moment we are crushed, that moment, we go forth victorious. Let us bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus Christ ascended at the right hand of the Father. You rule over heaven and earth. One day you will return, but now you intercede for your body. You have lavished on us the benefits of your suffering that we might live lives that bring glory to your name. Have mercy on us, we pray. Send your Holy Spirit to equip and empower us that we may live lives that future generations may say they were faithful to the end because we ask it in your name. Amen.